Hello and welcome to my podcast Upfront. Today I'm very excited to be speaking with Zoe Harkoon. She's a researcher and an author in the field of diet and health. Her PhD was about dietary fat recommendations and she made some fairly controversial observations which I think are going to come through in the course of our chat today. Zoe can tell us about that I hope. She's the author of some really excellent books such as The Obesity Epidemic, I thought I'd start off by mentioning that because I I found that book fascinating. It exploded ideas that I had about obesity, fat and cholesterol. Now, if you're listening to this and you follow me, I think you've already worked out by now that not all government advice is evidence based, uh, such as masks. Well, Zoe's work would blow your mind because lots of dietary recommendations are also not evidence based. Zoe, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's a lovely introduction. Thank you. Well, you know that I've read all your books and I've been thoroughly harcoomed. I, I, <laughs> I eat as per Zoe Harcoom recommendations now and it's been really good for my my weight and my health and, and everything really. And and your books make so much sense. And it is it is shocking when you realise that things like eight glasses of water a day or five portions of fruit and veg a day or calorie intakes... They're not based on any evidence, are they? No, um, it would actually be quicker to say, can I find a nutritional message that comes from the government public health message that is evidence based? I actually can't find one. So the ones that you've mentioned, um, you might be delighted to know that the alcohol units are also plucked out of the air. There's no evidence for those whatsoever. There's 13 grams of fiber no evidence for that have no more than 30 percent of your diet in the form of fat no evidence for that have no more than 10 percent of your diet in the form of saturated fat no evidence for that one either um the eat well plate that was basically designed by the fake food industry um it is just utterly shocking but it stood me in good stead because of course when covid came along i just thought well i don't believe a single public health dietary message that comes from the government so why would I start believing their public health messages on viruses or masks um, or anything else so it, it's actually served me really well but um, certainly over the last couple of years but I just don't trust anything that the public health arm says and I much and don't trust anything that the government says so I live in this nice little world where I just uh, work it all out myself well, this is the opposite way around to me. So for me, my epiphany that public health advice might not be evidence based came with COVID. And then I've worked backwards. I've done backwards calculations, including coming across you and um, working out that dietary advice was also not evidence based. Particularly love what you say about the alcohol units. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating to know isn't it, that we're told that as a woman, you shouldn't have more than 14 units a week, but it's not based on anything really, is it? No, no. I mean, one of the guys who was actually in the committee that um, came up with those guidelines, um, it was only a couple of years ago now, his name is Richard and I can't remember the same, but he said, oh no, the, the numbers were plucked out of the air because we had did all this chatting and we thought we ought to come up with some guidelines. So we just sort of plucked those out of the air, which is exactly how five a day came about. You know, why five? Well, it's the number of digits on one hand. Um, it seems achievable. It's sort of a little bit stretched, but it's not too stretched. Seven's probably too much. Three's not ambitious enough. I mean, this is the kind of thinking that goes on in government committees. And then they have five a day coordinators. They actually advertise jobs for people um, to go along and say, right, you're going to now make sure that everyone gets their five a day. And there's no evidence for it whatsoever. But then that's not actually dissimilar 
to where we're going to hire people to look at track and trace when we know that that's going to make no difference to the spread of COVID or to the health of the nation. Uh, we're going to make sure that people have got PPE and that's really not going to make that much difference either. So um, it's just a really little bit depressing, actually, that the people who are supposed to be working for us and looking after us and doing the right thing by us um, are just not. And it's time that everybody knew that and not just the few who have uh, decided to challenge these myths. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good way to set the scene for what we're going to talk about today. Um, I wanted I wanted to uh, discuss a new report from the UK's Nudge Unit, which is called Putting Health in the Spotlight, Quantifying the Impact of Obesity Prevention Policies in the UK. Now, from that title, people will probably get a sense of what they think the report's about. And it's going to frustrate those expectations. This report is not about what you'd think it's about. Um, so we'll, we'll come to that. But first of all, just a bit of background on the Nudge Unit, because some, some people might know, not, not know what it is. Its full name is the Behavioural Insights Team. Um, and Behavioural Insights is about the use of psychology and social science to affect policymaking. Um, it's called the Nudge Unit colloquially because what they do is nudge. They're nudging us into following policies or to be better citizens, model citizens. They have quite grand goals for themselves. What the website says is we improve lives and communities by helping all levels of government, the private sector and philanthropies tackle their biggest challenges. So let's see how that grand goal starts with the report. So I asked you to have a look at the report and you've written one of your um, Monday Note articles about it. So I'm going to link to that after this podcast. But can you just sum up what this report is about, please? Yeah, I mean, the background that you've given there is actually really helpful because, of course, these guys came to the fore during COVID. Um, they were the ones that started off with that absolutely um, frightening sort of dystopian statement saying uh, people are just not really scared enough so we need to scare them because scared people are more compliant that wasn't exactly that but it really wasn't that far away from it um and my take on this report when you very kindly asked me to have a look at it because i haven't spotted it so i just managed to bring my headset out um was that the team had obviously enjoyed coming to the fore during covid and kind of didn't want to let that center stage go um, so they are now looking to what can they do now that, oh, please, that COVID has subsided, although I noticed that um, there's talk about bringing back all kinds of nonsense at the moment, so we just have to hope that that goes away. But they were obviously were back at when this report was written in November 22. They were obviously in the place of what can we do now? We need to keep ourselves relevant and in the forefront and earn lots of money. So they took it upon themselves. They weren't asked by the government, oh, please can we review our obesity policies? They took it upon themselves to review the government obesity policies, but review is what I do in my Monday notes every week. Um, they didn't review the government policies, so they basically said um, there's four particular government policies that we're going to examine, and they're policies that I've examined in the past. So the first one that they looked at in terms of the chronology of coming in was one that came in in April 2018, which was the soft drinks industry levy. Then they looked at restricting placing um, bad products, as they call them, at the checkout, at the end of the aisle, um, and then store entrances, the, the places where we're most likely to see them and then make these impulse purchases, restrictions on what they call bog-offs, buy one, get one free, and you'll notice that they're always on junk food, they're never on sewing steak or, or fish, 
And then they were looking at um, a waterfed on TV and online advertising of what they call junk food. I mean, they actually call it foods high in fat, salt, and sugar. And as you and I know, fat is utterly life vital, salt is utterly life vital, sugar and carbohydrate and processed food is what they should be going after. But they looked at these four things. And then they said the government has actually produced a number of reports on each of these four things. So we're just going to take all the numbers from the government report and put them together in a table. Well, you could pretty much ask an 11 year old to do that in a maths lesson and just say, pull out the numbers and put these into a table. And that's what they did. And they then said, OK, so if we add up all of these, it's going to um, make savings somewhere between 1.75 billion and almost 300 billion. And I'm like, what? I think there must be a typo there. Um, you cannot be serious. You're talking about a range as big as one to 300 billion. But no, they were, um, because they didn't critique any of this. They didn't challenge any of this. They didn't say, they just didn't step back and, ju and just look at it. So they just presented these numbers and then said, okay, it's going to make a difference. Um, that's marvellous. We should nudge people into doing this kind of thing it's like i mean take me where you want to next but where do you start on wow the, okay there's a few things to pick up on already i mean the range is just astonishing and you know what it reminded me of it, it reminded me of the modeling in covid you know yeah. any number could die from this many hundreds of thousands to this many millions and the range is so large that it's pointless. Yeah. What what can you do with a range that that's that is that big? It's so imprecise that it it yeah. totally lacks um it totally lacks salience. It lacks a point. So that that was the first thing. But my overall impression when I looked at the report was I would expect from the title putting health in the spotlight that the report would put health in the spotlight, not the potential cost savings of interventions. And then it says quantifying the impact of obesity prevention policies in the UK. So I would expect what they'd be quantifying is the impact on obesity. I thought this report would be about how you improve obesity levels. But it's not really, is it? It's not. And they, they try to look at four things. So they, they try to sort of estimate the benefits and they try to put it in a health context, but it just didn't work. So... Number one, they said, oh, we'll try to work out the health benefit to the individual. Um, so basically, what the, the leap they were trying to make, and we're so right to put it in the context of, of COVID modelling, because the leaps that they make in these kind of models have to be exposed. So they're trying to say that we can put a monetary value on the health benefit to the individual. So if the government can take away confectionery at the checkout, then... People won't consume that confectionery, which is a giant leap already, uh, because we know that if you're going to get hold of confectionery, you're going to get hold of confectionery. You don't just have to have it at the checkout. But no, they're not going to eat it because it wasn't at the checkout, a direct result of the government policy. And then as a result of that, they're going to have a health benefit that we're going to be able to put a financial value on, um, which just doesn't happen. Uh, you know, I've, I've helped people lose a stone. I've helped people lose 10 stone. Um, people don't come back to me and say, oh, I can put a financial measure on how valuable that was to me. Um, because it isn't that way. It's just that they feel better, they can play with their grandchildren. So then they try to say, okay, there's savings to the UK NHS. Now that starts to get a little bit more sensible because, of course, if you help somebody to lose a stone or 10 stone and you remove them out of that dangerous territory for, say, type 2 diabetes, then you are into savings 
that could materialise to the NHS. But seriously, you're trying to say just not having confectionery at the till is going to mean that this person moves away from type 2 diabetes, and that's going to mean um, £50,000 saving to the NHS over the, the next few years. They're trying to get into savings to UK social care services. Um, now, almost everybody that I've helped to lose weight over the years, I don't think there's any interaction whatsoever with social care services. They might have avoided an interaction with the NHS by not getting type 2 diabetes, but social care services are a whole different ballgame. And then this was the most hilarious one. And then they said there's going to be increased economic output. And we thought, gee, how judgmental can you get? So mm. that, that person who loses a couple of stone um, is now supposed, supposed to be worth more to Starbucks because they can serve that more many um, coffees in a certain period of time. Or if they're working on a car assembly plant or if they're cutting hair, they can do that many more haircuts um, just because they managed to lose a stone. I mean, honestly, it was, I didn't even know where to start. I'm like, oh, Laura, thanks for sending me this one because this is just, this is just nuts. It is really strange. There's something that is, I mean, I, I do think that government should obviously do cost-benefit analyses for, for policies, although I, I think there's a different starting point for a report like this, you know, what, what the point of the report is. We'll come to that in a minute. But while they should be doing cost-benefit analysis, there is something very cold about it. Just talking about what the um, perceived economic output improvement will be in a human being if they lose weight, as though we're just um, units of production and you're a more efficient unit of production if you're a thinner unit of production and if you're a fatter unit of production. So that was that was quite strange. But I also um, questioned the evidence behind some of these um, policies. You mentioned the end of the aisle. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, this might be a little bit out of your field, but what's the evidence actually that removing junk food from the end of the aisle impacts obesity? Oh, now there you go. This is an interesting one, actually, because um, I think people know this. I used to work for Mars and I joined Mars working for the electronics division. So I didn't actually join the bad bit, the naughty bit. Um, not many people know that Mars had an electronics division. It was designed to make coin mechanisms because there wasn't a reliable coin mechanism. Mars wanted to be able to burn chocolate in chocolate machines 24-7. And because there wasn't a reliable coin mechanism, Mars developed a, a division to make one. So that was the start of my Mars journey. But I did actually end up in confectionery, because if you were going to do well at Mars, you had to go into one of the core businesses, which was either confectionery or pet food. Um, people may not realize that pedigree pet food is kitty cat whiskers. That's on Mars as well. Um, and I ended up working in one of the sales divisions that looked at exactly this. So, um, unfortunately, I am able to tell you that seven oh, out of ten people, seven out of ten people who walk into a area where confectionery is an impulse purchase did not intend to make an impulse purchase, but they did. Um, so they're going to the gas station, petrol station, thinking they're just going to buy, uh, pay for their petrol, but they come out with a ice cream or a nice burger or a bag of crisps. Um, and they go to the cinema and they intend to just watch the cinema, but they see the big rack of popcorn and confectionery and it kind of gets them. So yes, there is something in, if you put something by the tail, particularly if you put it at children height and you've got the children pester power, um, there is something in you are more likely to buy confectionery. But what this is not allowing for is to take it away from that particular place 
doesn't stop people having those other opportunities for the impulse purchase. So yes, I'm sorry, that was that was my point. Exactly. I, I don't I don't question it will reduce impulse purchases, but will it affect affect obesity? No. Because no. if you you know, will, will you actually just find find the products you want in a different part of the store? Will you make an impulse purchase somewhere else? Is altering obesity simply about removing impulse purchases by a till? That's what I'm questioning. If there's any evidence for that. Yeah, no, and no, there isn't. Um, and the only one of these measures that this report looked at, which was the soft drinks industry levy in terms of the fact that it had actually come in in 2018, so it was one that we could evaluate. Um, the question that the report didn't ask, and it was a really obvious one to ask, is, OK, we've had one of these three measures, but it's been in for a few years. Has it made a difference? Um, and it took me about a couple of minutes to find that out. So you go on the government obesity website and you say, OK, what was the... Um, obesity figure before that introduction um, and you look at numbers of about um, 20 what was it 22.7% or something um, in 2015-16 then this soft drinks levy comes in obesity is then 24% in 2019 2020 and then it's 25% at the most recent look which is 2020 to 2021 so it's now it's continuing to rise mm. so the soft drinks levy and this was hilarious in the report as well, because when we tried to look at the health benefit of the soft drinks levy, um, they had all these columns for those four things that I mentioned, the benefits to the individual, the benefits to the NHS, social care settings, and then the increased economic output. And so the one that they could actually quantify, because it's already happened, there's this sort of big number of nearly four billion that they're trying to say is the benefit that has accrued from this particular measure. And I was looking at it in those columns. And it wasn't in any of the columns. So they weren't saying it was an individual benefit or an NHS benefit. It was in just this final column um, of it, it's delivered some sort of net present social value, um, which is a bit alarming, but that's a separate issue. Um, and that apparently was from the coffers that had gone into the government from the levy that had been paid on the soft drinks. So it's like, hang on a sec, if the levy had been paid, that means the soft drinks were still bought. So if they were still bought, presumably they were still consumed. So there's been no benefit to the individual doing which are still a little bit. But it's generally less, less, less sugar has been consumed, presumably. Um, no, because you only pay the drinks levy on the ones that still fail the, the drinks test. So yes, if if the oh, company had yeah, if they'd switched out the sugar and the low calorie version and people have bought the low calorie version then they wouldn't have had to pay the levy. But the fact that they've paid $4 billion in levy says to me that people still bought the, the products that the levy was imposed upon. So mm. where's the health benefit? And, of course, the obesity stats say, where's the health benefit? So I, I suppose you could say, um, as the soft drinks levy was brought in in 2018, I'm to play devil's advocate here, we've, we've had uh, the COVID pandemic and the lockdown. And so... In the environment, there are lots of factors that would have affected obesity. It's not yeah. as though everything stayed the same, and the only thing that changed was the soft drinks levy. Yes. But like you say, that you know the, the the data does tell a story. Obesity has increased since the soft drinks levy was introduced. But what it's done is raise revenue. I mean, is are, yeah. are these measures really just about raising money for the government while appearing to pull a lever of control look we're doing something we're doing something about fat children um but actually it does nothing about fat children and it just makes money for the government 
I think it's actually more about the second thing that you said there. My view is that this is to make the government look like it's doing something. Um, because the government keeps producing reports and the latest report, um, we've got the standard figures that two thirds of adults are above normal um, weight, so they're in what we call the overweight category, the BMI of 25 to almost 30. And then half of these are an actual obese, which is the BMI of over 30. One in three children leaving primary school are overweight, and um, one in five are obese. I mean, this is just a damning indictment of our poor children's health. Um, so I actually think they get so much stick from campaigns groups like the Children's Food and Climate Action and Sugar, that kind of thing, um, that they want to be seen to be doing something. So remember they appointed a panel of the food industry to come up with the role model healthy eating plate for the UK. So if you go on my site and put in the words eat well, I call it the eat badly plate, but if you put in eat well um, conflicts, it will bring up um, both uh, an academic article that I wrote in the British Journal of Sports Medicine on this topic in, back in 2016. And it also comes up with a blog post where I went through in detail Public Health England appointed um, 11 basically food industry reps. There were a couple of okay people, but the majority were um, food industry reps from things like the Food and Drink Federation, the Institute for Grocery Distribution. And they put those guys in charge of designing that plate, which then appears in hospitals, it's embedded into the school curriculum. It's a crime against public health. And they just brazenly do it and get away with it and and life just goes on. I mean, it just beggars belief if you actually try to look at what these guys are up to. So they don't give a flying um, castle name forex for public health is my conclusion. I've come to over 20 years of researching in this field they might try to make it look like they're doing something, but they absolutely don't care about public health. If they did, they would not put that out as role model health eating and would not let the fake food industry at anywhere near designing our role model health eating plate. Um, and they would do, you not, do something. Do you not think it's possible that they do care about public health, that they're just constantly misguided? No, no, I'm sorry, I just don't. Um, I have it on good authority. Um, that somebody pretty senior in public health England actually had a conversation with somebody I know and kind of, you know, we know where you're coming from. This is somebody on our side of sort of eat raw food and choose that raw food for the nutrients it provides. Why can't you put that kind of advice on your plate? Why can you barely see an egg on the plate? Why can you not see, you know, more than a finger level of early fish and, you know, as the red meat, forget it. They're more likely to put Coca-Cola on the badly plate than they are ready to meet. Um, and it's kind of, you know, what are we supposed to do? We've got 400,000, I think it is, people working in the fake food industry. So what are we supposed to do? Just close it down and lose all of those jobs? Um, they take the sort of the big industry view of we just can't afford to not be having these industries. That's fine. They don't have to put them in charge of their model healthy eating. Um, and also, that's the worry for the Department of Employment or the Department for GDP in the UK or industry in the UK or whatever. But please just keep it separate from public health. Um, but they don't keep it separate from public health. So I did, I went into COVID knowing these guys just don't give a castle moon for X about our public health. And if they did, the stuff that was coming out of that department would be very different to what is actually coming out of that department. So, you know, it's still in good stead because thank goodness I didn't believe all the nonsense that came out. Otherwise, goodness knows what I might have fallen for over the last couple of years. 
Oh, well, that, I mean, that's, that is an interesting perspective. I, I don't know if I'm naturally cynical enough to have thought of that myself. But it, in, it, there's a way in which it makes sense. You know, the, there are many uh, flaws in this report, and we've, we've touched on several of them now. But one thing struck me, the, the report notes that being overweight and obese puts you at greater risk for COVID. So it makes the point that people, you know, the government wants people to be um, more healthy, to be more resistant to disease. Now, that sounds really reasonable, except, of course, we know that one of our biggest non-pharmaceutical interventions, one of the most um, drastic things the government did was to instruct people to stay at home. Of course, the nudge unit and spy B, all the behavioural scientists were involved in persuading the nation to stay home. So it's a bit like a game of Simon Says, you know, first of all, it's stay at home, get fat. Then it's now lose weight, albeit with policies that don't necessarily work. So let's I mean, let's conclude by um, let's conclude with a bit but, of genuine I'm, advice about how people should tackle being obese. Why, you know, if. <laughs> If, if the soft drinks levy has been imposed and, you know, buy one, get one free policies are going to be tackled and impulse purchase tackled and we're still obese. Why are we still obese, Zoe? What's really oh, causing yeah. the nation's obesity? Yeah, no, I'll come to that in just one second. I have to apologise for chuckling when you started talking about COVID and obesity because it's not a funny topic. But I just had that image of, and you know this um, video very, very well, when Boris Johnson in January 22 um, basically went out to the nation and, and pretty much said, um, oh, you don't want to be starting a general new world diet because we all know how tough they are. So just come and get jabbed instead. It's like, oh, where do you even start? Um, it was very okay, odd. So it was a, that was a very, very odd moment. It was um, indeed, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I understood I understood he wanted to push the vaccine rollout, that that was their public health initiative. But to tell people not to try to lose weight, I don't know how effective New Year's resolutions are, but how strange to tell people not to bother. Yeah, to look after yeah. their health in general, which would have been, you know, a, co a COVID comorbidity, but just a really positive thing to do for your health anyway. To say, don't bother. I know. It jabbed was the strain. It was discombobulating. It was very weird. <laughs> it was, right. In a nutshell, what do you do? Ignore all government dietary advice. Ignore that plate particularly. It's absolutely terrible way to eat. Absolutely terrible way to eat. Um, number one, eat real food. Um, and that plate is, is comprised of such a high level of processed food, it's not true. So you don't want to be eating sugary cereals and breads and cakes and biscuits and low-fat this and low-fat that. Um, eat real food, which is basically meat, fish, eggs, dairy, vegetables, fruits. Um, some legumes are fine, although animal foods are better. Some whole grains are fine, but you want to be eating whole brown rice or a baked potato and not a bread that's probably got 50 ingredients in it and most of all recognize so number one eat real food number two choose that real food from the nutrients it provides and that means you should be choosing meat particularly red fish particularly oily dairy particularly full fat eggs particularly the yolks vegetables particularly green things um and then the less sugary starchy other options so uh, particularly if you've got obesity or diabetes you really want to be moving away from even what we would call real carbs, whether it's brown rice, baked potatoes or whatever. Um, carbs are not your friend if you're trying to lose weight. And then the final one that I would say, which again is completely counter to government advice, dietitians tell you, have breakfast, then have a snack mid-morning, then have lunch, then have a snack, then have dinner, then have something before you go to bed. And I'm not sure how you're ever supposed to burn fat when basically you're just sticking petrol in 
the whole time. So the third tip is eat a maximum of three times a day. If you're the kind of person that doesn't like breakfast or lunch, then don't force yourself to have it. If you do, then eat three times a day, but you've got to stop eating between meals. And um, if you can extend the overnight fast, so if you can have your dinner as early as possible and your breakfast as late as possible, so you give your body a really good window of not having any fuel going in, that's going to increase your likelihood of, of burning your own body fat. And it's also going to fantastically help you in avoiding uh, things like insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and other metabolic conditions that are going to shorten your life, quite frankly. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for the anti anti-government new year's health advice that's really good and i and i can say having read your books and followed the advice if you if you are eating well if you're really fueled on protein and good fats you know lots of lots of fat actually then you feel more satiated and you're less likely to stop for those impulse purchases as well yeah and and those are a cycle aren't they they're a cycle of up and down and crash and feed and you can get you can get out of that cycle yeah, and, and it's about not feeling fat. It's not about adding butter to your steak, which I know a lot of people do in the keto world, and I'm not a fan of that either. Um, but it's it's about a, a piece of salmon, which counts as an oily fish. It's actually going to be more satiating and filling and nutritious and better for you than a piece of cod. Um, and it just happens to be richer in fat. Um, but so many people fear fat that comes in food, or they choose low-fat dairy, and it's just not as filling as full fat down. So a proper cappuccino will keep you going for a few hours. A skin latte or whatever will keep you going for about half an hour. So choose wisely and the body will thank you for it. Okay, well, I'm going to link to your um, to your dietary advice from this podcast and also to the report because I think the, the, your analysis of the report, because your analysis of the report was just fantastic. I'm so grateful that you went through the numbers and the modelling so that I didn't have to and also to the report if people want to see it for me what I'd say to summarize is this report it epitomizes um government policy which is about taking action without knowing what the right action is it's a report about quantifying the impacts of obesity prevention policies without really quantifying what happens to obesity it's all about whether these policies might save money and make people more economically productive but the number the 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 numbers the modeling um have so many leaps and stretches and such wide margins that you can't even take that seriously can you this is this is a report written by people that love to take action and to control but without ever really thinking about what makes people obese and how we tackle that there's nothing there's nothing really good in there about dietary advice yeah that's very true it's it's a very backwards report. Um, Zoe, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was really interesting as always. I'd love to talk to you again about um, more of the diet madness that comes up this year because it doesn't stop really, does it? It doesn't. So anytime we get more, I'd love to chat again. All right. Thank you so much, Zoe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye.